Hello, everyone. Welcome to Keller and Heckman's briefing on the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's publication in this morning's Federal Register related to the COVID-19 uh, requirements for employers. Uh, it is an emergency temporary standard. It was announced uh, yesterday and published in this morning's Federal Register. It's a 500-page uh, publication in the Federal Register, and uh, our attorneys here in the OSHA practice at Keller and Heckman have reviewed it, uh, digested it, and we're looking forward to briefing you on it. There's a lot to cover, so why don't we get started? Let me start by introducing our, our panel today. My name is Manish Rath. I'm one of the OSHA attorneys here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, DC. And I've been doing this work representing management employers in the field of occupational safety and health law for 21 of my 25, 26 years of practice. Uh, I'm joined today, and I'm very fortunate to be joined today by a great panel, starting with one of the leading lights in OSHA law anywhere in the country, my partner and friend, Larry Halperin, uh, who has been engaged in representing management in OSHA law nationwide for, for several decades. Uh, and so thank you for joining us today, Larry. Taylor Johnson is also joining us today, one of our frequent contributors to our monthly series, the OSHA 3030, a valued part of our OSHA law team, and somebody who's immersed himself in virtually all aspects of management side, occupational safety and health law. Uh, so thank you, Taylor, as well. Javane Tartar, who I've worked with for a number of years now, and is one of the anchors of the OSHA law practice. And I'm very grateful to you as well. And Javane, for many of you who know her, also engages in a practice involving TSCA and Frefra Law, as well as Prop 65 and several other associated practices. So all of the complicated stuff, including occupational safety and health law. Javane, thank you for joining us. Well, I think we should get started. Why don't we start by talking about what we're gonna talk about today. Taylor? Yeah, that's right, Manish. Just to provide a quick overview of today's briefing, um, it's a great program that we've got lined up here. And we're going to cover, first off, um, you know, who is covered by this rule. Uh, secondly, we'll launch into the requirements of the rule. Um, we're going to touch on when must employers uh, comply uh, with the ETS. Um, what can we expect next? You know, is there litigation on the horizon? And finally, we'll wrap up. Uh, we'll take some questions and answers. We've already gotten a bunch of questions and answers. And um, feel free to submit those into the question and answer box as well during the program, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, and with that, Manish, uh, let's jump right in. Yeah, I think that the first question, and this is now a little bit less than a day old, but we've gotten so many questions from clients, and they've been all around the country, and they've been helpful in helping us understand what's on your mind. So, so one of the questions that we get a lot of, one of the areas we get a lot of questions about is who's covered, who's not. Uh, but Taylor, as you mentioned, there's a question and answer tab at the top of your screen, and you can use that to populate the the uh, question and answers we we in our email we had a a button that you could click to pre-submit questions and we've gotten a number of them and we've put them up at the end we'll go off the record we won't record that that fraction of the program that'll just be for our live participants but uh, but if you have any questions and we have time for them please use the question and answer box as well so as I said before one of the things that employers are are asking us a lot of questions about is who's covered. We hear that there's a threshold of employers with a 100 employees or more. And what does that mean? What are the details involved there? Well, the way the standard is written is it covers any employer with 100 or more employees at any time during the efficacy period of the standard, which the efficacy period starts with the publication date today and goes six months. 
uh, and it, it may go longer, but it goes at least six months. And so during that period, if at any time during that period, an employer's uh, population count rises to 100 or more, that employer will be covered under this emergency temporary standard. Now, that means that if a, an employer rises to the level of 100 employees and then falls back down below 100 employees, that employer will nevertheless be required to comply with this emergency temporary standard for the remainder of the efficacy period of this standard from the point where they hit 100 employees forward to the end of the efficacy period of the standard. Um, another thing that I wanna clarify is this refers to all employees at all work sites. So it is not on a per establishment basis. All employees at all work sites should be counted to determine whether or not an employer has 100 employees. Uh, another point I'd make is this includes full-time and part-time employees uh, at any level of part-time part work uh, to add up to just a, a straight headcount. Uh, it does not, however, include independent contractors that are properly designated as independent contractors. And it doesn't include uh, employees of co-located employers. So, so when you look at OSHA's multi-employer worksite doctrine or in employment law, the, the co-employment doctrine, the, those employees of other employers would not be included, nor for that matter, where uh, a franchisor and a franchisee uh, have separate corporate entities, separate management, and their arm's length uh, in a franchise relationship would the franchisee's employees count towards the franchisor or vice versa. They would be counted separately. Uh, we do a lot of work with uh, large national franchisors. We also do a lot of work in, in construction with construction firms. And at construction firms, you'll see uh, multi-employer work sites uh, almost universally. And so each employer must count their own employees and an employee would not be counted for two different employers that are co-located on the work site. And that may even be the case if an employee works, does a task for another employer. Uh, there's still an employee of one employer. If, if that's the case, then they'll be counted just under that one employer. Um, some questions that have come up are whether temporary or seasonal workers, especially since we're coming into the holiday season, uh, would go into the count. Yes, if at any point during the efficacy period of the, of the uh, emergency temporary standard, the headcount rises to 100, then, then that employer would be covered. Um, one more that's interesting is whether or not two employers with common management and common policies and a common safety and health program would be counted together when counting their, their respective employees. And the answer is OSHA has taken the position that they would be counted as a single employer for the purpose of the headcount. That if you have two incorporated entities that have common ownership, common management, common safety and health program, that they are really just subsidiaries of the of a common organization and that the total headcount would obtain in OSHA's opinion. That is interpretive. That's in the 500 pages that precede the uh, published rule. Uh, and I think I mentioned staffing agencies, employees, but if I haven't, uh, employees of staffing agencies would not be counted to the client employer. The staffing agencies headcount would be its own, including for its temp employees assigned to client work sites. And the client would only count its own employees, not temp staffing employees of a staffing agency. Okay, important stuff in order to figure out whether or not you, your organization is covered. Let's move on. I think that's one of the more important questions. Uh, which employers are not covered? Well, this, in the standard, 
uh, clearly it uh, states that it does not apply by implication to employers with 99 employees or less. The standard also does not apply to employers establishments that are already covered under the safer federal uh, employees workforce tax force uh, guidance for federal contractors and for subcontractors of federal contractors. Those establishments, that is on a per establishment basis, those establishments are expected to comply with the safer federal uh, employee workforce guidelines and not with the OSHA guidelines. Uh, the same goes to employers who have employees covered under the healthcare emergency temporary standard promulgated earlier this year, I think April. Uh, it also does not apply to employees of the of federal agencies uh, or, or state and local governments that don't have state plans covering those state and local government employees. Uh, that, that does not include, however, the U.S. Postal Service. Okay. So those are employers not covered under the standard expressly. Uh, in addition, employees may not be subject to the requirements that an employer is expected to mandate in their workforce. If the employees uh, don't report to a workplace at all, they work exclusively at home, they work exclusively outdoors, 100% outdoors. And that can't include for, for those of us uh, in our, our client community, and friends of Calvin Heckman who are in the construction sector, for example, that would not include a semi-finished house. The uh, agency has said exclusively outdoors means purely outdoors under sky and without walls or partially finished buildings. There are also some manufacturing centers that I work with where they have these large sheds. They're the size of a huge warehouse, but they don't have any walls. They have the four steel beam pillars and a roof. And it's an open question as to whether that would constitute open outdoors because although it has a roof, it has no walls and uh, it's, it's uh, an incredibly large and voluminous area under roof. So I think that, and uh, I think that that's an open question as to where the line is drawn between entirely outdoors and, uh, or otherwise conversely not qualified for this exemption. Uh, but their, their response is partially finished buildings such as the one I just described would not apply to this exemption. Uh, and then finally, of course, as we mentioned before, work for federal agencies other than the Postal Service or working for state and local governments uh, in state plan states that don't have a state plan covering state or local government employees. So with that said, I think the next thing we ought to talk about is now that we know who's covered and not covered under the standard, we ought to talk about what the standard requires of employers who are covered. Chavane, could you walk us through that? Hi, Manish. Uh, this emergency temporary standard creates a number of requirements for employers, which we'll review in more detail. But as an overview, employers must create a written policy requiring uh, vaccination or weekly testing of employees. They must determine their employees' vaccination status. They have to provide employees with a reasonable amount of time and paid sick leave to get vaccinated and recover from the side effects of a vaccine. Uh, they must require unvaccinated employees to get weekly testing. Uh, they must require employees to promptly notify them when they receive a positive COVID-19 test and the employer has to remove the employee until the employee meets certain testing or return to work requirements. Uh, the employer must uh, ensure employees who are not fully vaccinated that they wear face coverings unless they meet uh, certain exceptions. Uh, the employer must provide certain information to its employees 
and they must uh, report COVID-19 work-related fatalities and inpatient hospitalizations to OSHA. And uh, there are several record-keeping requirements for employers that we'll go over. So next, Larry, uh, could you please talk about the requirement for employers to have a written vaccination policy or weekly testing? The uh, policy on its face seems very simplistic, basically write a policy. Uh, but if you actually read the guidance document that OSHA put out, what they really mean is employers will develop, implement, and maintain a workplace policy that complies with all the paragraphs E through J. And therefore, the document doesn't simply say we're going to do this or we're going to do that, but look at it as if it's one of the other OSHA programs where you have to specify all the requirements. So you're going to have to specify whether you're going to mandate vaccinations or not. If you're going to mandate vaccination or testing, then deadlines for compliance with the testing requirements, you're going to have to figure out how to arrange whether they're going to be on-site or off-site for vaccination, off-site, on-site for testing, uh, whether it's going to be during and after working hours, uh, what the acceptable tests would be, acceptable providers, uh, procedures for getting the testing and submitting results, specifying ongoing testing deadlines. If you've got a large number of employees, whether you're going to have them all submit the date on one date or whether you're going to have everybody on a different days of the week, and arranging for all that by groups or whatever process, who you're going to submit all the data to, how it's going to be collected and theoretically entered into some sort of electronic database that's going to be easy to track. Uh, specifying exemptions, what they'll be uh, for the typical you know, medical, uh, religious, whether you're going to have forms for them, what the forms will say, what the questions will be, who's going to handle them, how they'll be applied for, what the deadline is for compliance, uh, the requirement to inform the employees uh, about all these requirements talk about later, but basically they're going to have to have the employee perform the, uh, provide the employee of the vaccination status and how that's going to be done, what documents are going to be required. You have to explain what time is going to be allowed for these things, whether it's going to be paid time, sick leave time for vaccination purposes, um, forming a positive tests, how that's going to be done with the documentation, who you're going to report that to, and basically how all this is going to be communicated. And the most difficult thing of all, I believe, for most employers is going to be to the extent that you don't get cooperation from some employees, what disciplinary action you would take. Uh, all this is, of course, supposed to be done by December 5th. Uh, I would imagine some people are going to take a little longer to figure out what to do with some of these areas, and it's going to take some time to coordinate and find out what's available, the timeframes, but the disciplinary policy, uh, you could look at some of the guidance that OPM has for the federal employer section or sector to give you some ideas there. They talk about the fact that the idea is to encourage employees not to to comply rather than to try to sanction them and discipline them, so they they advocate at least a graduated policy there in terms of discipline, but I, I believe you'll find that to be the most challenging of all, I'm trying to keep that objective with the varying situations, varying parts of the country, various workplaces, various company policies, and it's just going to be a challenge. Yeah, Larry, you did a great job of expressing how on the face of the standard, the way it's written, it's deceptively simple. It's actually a very complicated 
kind of policy that an employer would have to prepare that contemplates all of those features in it. And, uh, and I think that's a really well taken point. Taylor, one of the things that Larry mentioned was employees, some employees are going to be faced with a vaccination requirement and uh, seek an accommodation or uh, some kind of exemption. Can you talk through the standards uh, method for addressing that? Right, Manish. So OSHA actually states in the ETS that there are three categories of employees who, who would be exempt uh, from a mandatory vaccine policy. Um, number one is those for whom a vaccine is medically contraindicated. Uh, number two is those for whom a medical necessity requires a delay in vaccination. And number three is uh, those legally entitled to a reasonable accommodation uh, for a disability or a sincerely held religious belief. And the ETS cites to EEOC guidance on how to evaluate these reasonable requests. Uh, it's important to note here that with respect to those for whom a vaccine is medically contraindicated, uh, that a doctor's note only would not suffice. Uh, you would still need to meet the relatedness requirements uh, of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and its implementing regulations. And while the ETS spells out exemptions uh, from an employer's mandatory vaccine policy, uh, it's also important to note that it does not spell out whether a protected status affects employer duties under the standard uh, with respect to, for example, removal from the work site or paying uh, for weekly testing. And um, also we note that employees exempt from a mandatory vaccine policy are still subject to the standards weekly testing requirements. And Larry- and uh, you know, the requirements, right? Right, that's right. And Larry, you know, the ETS also addresses how an employer can determine the vaccination status of employees. Well, the, the question is, has there been any inoculation at all? Is there a complete series? Depends on which vaccine. Um, the ideal list of various means of demonstrating proof is listed here in terms of immunization from the healthcare provider, the pharmacy, and the, but they're basically official medical records. Then we get down to the situation where for some reason an employee is unable to provide proof. Um, the guidance suggests that is more likely to be any, an employee uh, that doesn't have access to a computer, for example, or potentially someone from, um, an immigration background that's just not familiar with the system. The general gist of it is, if you try hard enough, you should be able to get the CDC document off the web. Or if you went to a pharmacy, the pharmacy account has a record that you can download. So those things are expected to be provided. And this thing about attesting to vaccination status is kind of a last resort. It's going to be disfavored. And that's going to put pressure on the employer to put pressure on the employee to make sure that they they don't fall into that category. Or potentially, if it's a small number, the employer might be able to assist the employee in actually getting that information, assuming the, the employee wants to cooperate in that effort. Thanks. The next question, Larry, that the standard addresses is who should pay for the time necessary for compliance with the standard. And what the agency has said in this emergency temporary standard is that the employer must pay for a reasonable amount of time to take the primary vaccination, uh, up to four hours, including travel time, and must pay for it at the regular rate of pay. They note that the employer can certainly do more than that, but that is the minimum provided for in the emergency temporary standard. Uh, 
then it additionally provides requires the employer to provide a reasonable amount of time off and and I presume that may, means uh, protected time and paid sick leave to employees to recover from the side effects of uh, a, a vaccination. Uh, in addition, it states that employers are already required under the Department of Labor, and this is true for at least a year and a half, the Department of Labor has maintained an interpretation stating that the employer is required to, to pay for uh, time spent waiting for or receiving medical attention that is required by the employer. So now that OSHA has required this of the employer to require it of the employee, there is no doubt that the longstanding Department of Labor interpretation about compliance with employer requirements is compensable time. Uh, this, uh, to me, as a wage hour, also somebody who also engages in wage hour law, it's as simple as that. If it's an employer requirement that the employee is fulfilling, then it should be deemed compensable time. Then the question comes up for those who are unvaccinated, what are the requirements that the employer must impose on those employees? Javne, could you walk us through that? Yes, so employers are required to ensure that each employee who's unvaccinated complies with a weekly testing requirement. So, so for unvaccinated employees who report to the workplace, at least once every seven days where other individuals are present, like coworkers, um, they must be tested at least once every seven days. And they have to provide documentation of the most recent COVID test result uh, to the employer no later than the seventh day following the date that the employee, employee last provided a test result. So, uh, for unvaccinated employees who do not report to the workplace during a seven day, uh, during a period of seven or more days where ind other individuals are present, like, for example, if the employee's been teleworking for a few weeks uh, before reporting to the workplace, they have to be tested within seven days prior to returning, and they must provide documentation of that test upon return to the workplace. So, uh, so employers are not required to pay for the testing costs under the emergency temporary standard. However, OSHA notes in the standard that uh, employer payment for testing may be required by other laws or collective bargaining agreements. Um, and also note that test results are considered employee medical records and they must be maintained by the employer while the emergency temporary standard remains in effect. Uh, so Larry, can you please uh, talk about what types of COVID-19 tests are considered acceptable for the purposes of this uh, emergency standard? So the test has to be approved by FDA and consistent with the requirement that there be an actual vaccination. Uh, the test must test for the presence of the virus not an antibody. The fact that someone has had COVID-19 and recovered and has antibodies is not considered compliance. You actually need to be vaccinated. Uh, the test can be of various types, but in all cases, it needs to be FDA approved. And bottom line, uh, the actual reading of the test needs to be over the network with a telehealth provider or with the employer observing rather than something that's completely self-prepared and self 
directed, conducted, and self-reported that by the employee, that would not be acceptable. Larry, I think that puts employers in the position now that if, if an acceptable testing method is an employee can get tested at a point of healthcare, can take a sample and send it off to a lab, can take a sample and have it read in the presence of a telehealth provider, or in the presence of the employer, observed by the employer, that that puts the employer in a uh, potentially, theoretically, higher degree of exposure because there is potentially infectious material that's being handled in the workplace as opposed to permitting the employee to take a fully unproctored uh, test at home and read the results themselves. Well, let's go back and I should have pointed out one thing. These are the types of tests that are acceptable. If you look at it from the standpoint that the employer can either mandate vaccination or offer tests, it, this does not mean the employer has to offer all of these tests. And thank you for bringing it up, Monish. It, it simply means these are acceptable to OSHA. The point is an employer can say, I don't want to delve into all these problems. You're going to go to drugstore X or you're going to go to someplace and this is the kind of testing we're going to accept. Otherwise, we're going to tell you to get vaccinated. I mean, the employer has that leverage. And of course, it's, it's going to have to be done in a humane way. But to bring up the point, you know, address the point you're raising, uh, there are a lot of employers who simply aren't going to want to get involved in monitoring an employee taking samples and, and handling all of that and you know, chain of custody and all the other things that go along with it. It's just, it's not practical for them. Agreed. I would uh, suggest that employers look with a great deal of circumspection at the idea that they create an option uh, where they the employer is observing either the testing sampling or the reading of the results. All of the other options look considerably more attractive uh, by comparison. Well, a home test raises some issues too about whether the employee is actually giving a sample. I mean, in, in the drug testing field, that would never be acceptable. I so. Javanay, how should employers handle a case where an employee takes a vaccination and has an adverse reaction? We're not talking about the typical mild symptoms mm -hmm. that ensue for no more than 24 to 36 hours after uh, the moment of vaccination. We're talking about something perhaps more severe than that. Right, Manish. Um, under most state laws, an adverse reaction would be covered uh, by workers' compensation. Uh, we'll note that OSHA initially required employers to record adverse reactions to mandatory vaccines, but then they reversed their policy. They, they issued a statement, uh, I believe it was in their FAQs, saying that OSHA does not wish to have any appearance of discouraging workers from re uh, receiving the COVID-19 vaccination and also does not wish to disincentivize employers' vaccination efforts. Um, so an employer can require uh, an employee to use uh, accrued paid sick leave to recover from an adverse reaction. Uh, so Taylor, can, uh, can you please discuss the standards uh, employee notification requirement? Sure, Javanay. And, uh, you know, when we say employee notification here, uh, what we are talking about is an employee's duty to notify an employer of a positive COVID-19 test or diagnosis. And so regardless of vaccination status, 
an employer must immediately remove from the workplace any employee who receives a positive COVID-19 test or is diagnosed with COVID-19 by a licensed healthcare provider. Uh, the employer must keep the employee removed until the employee receives either a negative test result or receives a recommendation to return to work from a licensed healthcare provider. And as the slide notes, the ETS does not require employers to provide paid time off to any employee uh, for removal as a result of a positive COVID-19 test or diagnosis. And in addition, an employer can require the removed employee to work remotely or in isolation if suitable work is available and if the employee is not too ill to work. And Manishta, the ETS also addresses face coverings. Right. It's interesting that employees, let me see if I can get to the right slide. Um, that's 19. It's interesting that employers have the opportunity to create a policy that requires alternatively vaccination or the idea of weekly testing. Those employees who are not fully vaccinated for any reason, on the basis of merely not wanting to be vaccinated or also on the basis of uh, perhaps a sincerely held religious belief or a medical contraindication or a uh, qualified disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Any of those employees who are not fully vaccinated as fully vaccinated is defined by the standard must wear face coverings whenever indoors with other persons. Uh, provided that they're not alone in a room with a closed door and walls that go all the way up to the ceiling. Uh, there is an exception for briefly eating or drinking. Uh, there's an exception, of course, if they're not wearing a face covering because they're wearing a respirator or face mask. Thank you, OSHA, for that uh, exception. Uh, and uh, as well, when based on the, the nature of the task being performed, a face covering might create a greater hazard or the work itself requires an uncovered mouth. Uh, a greater hazard example might be where in a, a workplace with an ambient noise environment, uh, audible safety signals are necessary for safe conduct of work, maybe in, in conjunction with motor vehicles or large uh, equipment, uh, then, then there may be a determination that uh, face covering is, is a greater hazard. Uh, I would use the greater hazard uh, exception, I think, very uh, deliberately and uh, selectively. And then when work requires uh, that the person's mouth be uncovered. And there, there are certainly some examples of that. Uh, maybe a old timey uh, glass blower or a musical instrument player. But I think that there are other uh, tasks that are performed by mouth, such as those who use headsets, uh, telephone operators, etc., that are more common. So if you have one of those exceptional uh, job descriptions where a covered uh, mouth would prohibit people from doing their work, uh, then, then you may fit under this exemption. But I, again, would use this exception selectively. Um, this would likely be a uh, requirement that an employer imposes on an employee in conjunction with weekly testing, because it applies to those employees who are not fully vaccinated and working indoors with or in vehicles with other persons. It applies if an employee is working at the home residence or, or the work site of some other employer or some other customer. It applies if an employee uh, is working all by themselves, but there are people from the public, visitors or customers who enter the work premises. Uh, and so, so it's any other person, not just coworkers. And there's a requirement in the emergency temporary standard that employers must take steps to monitor for proper 
uh, first of all, with com for compliance that employees who are not fully vaccinated are indeed wearing face coverings and also that they are wearing them properly. Uh, there's an interesting additional provision in the standard that prohibits an employer or restricts an employer from prohibiting customers or visitors from wearing face coverings on the premise, presumably, that an employer who has customers or visitors who visit the premises, uh, those members of the public have the potential to increase exposure risks to the employer's employees. Uh, so, so employers may not prohibit customers or visitors from wearing face coverings. Uh, finally, uh, as I said before, this, this is likely to be something that's done in, this requirement for face coverings is likely to be done in conjunction with the requirement that employees obtain weekly testing if they're coming to the workplace at least once every seven days. So, so that's the face covering requirement. And I think it, it imposes a significant enforcement or monitoring and enforcement burden on an employer. And I would urge employers to keep records of disciplinary action, monitoring walkthroughs, and, uh, and that way the employer will have a good written record to demonstrate compliance with that section. So, so in addition, there's a duty to inform employ, uh, employees of certain, in all OSHA standards, if not all, almost all, there is a training requirement and a standard will set forth what are the elements that an employer must train employees of. And that's no different here. Larry, could you talk a little bit about the duty to inform employees and what, what employees must be informed sure. of? Yeah, there's one other thought I had. Uh, face masks and uh, face coverings are both defined in the standard the face covering is a little loose and seems to include somebody who might tie a bandana up or something like that, which potentially could get caught in a machine and get wrapped around. So I, I think an employer would be well within their rights to insist on just providing face masks on their own or maybe even requiring employees. It'd probably be considered a piece of gear that the, the employee would require to wear, but the employer could provide uh, that would ensure sanitation, for example, and that there weren't any safety issues raised by what an employee might walk in with. Uh, so that's something else to keep in mind. Um, with respect to the information, basically, uh, you've got this written program we talked about before. You can't assume the employee has read either the the 400-page preamble, you know, as the way it's printed out, or even this this shorter version of the reg text, that's your obligation to basically inform your employees about what the reg text says to the extent it's relevant to them. So you're gonna to have to basically think about the program you're writing and provide a training program. And realistically, it would be like any other OSHA standard where you'd, you'd end up having to put together some sort of presentation, ideally a PowerPoint, but some sort of presentation to employees, you'll bring them all into, an appropriate uh, virtual room, if not a, a real room these days, and uh, provide the training and have them provide some sort of sign off that they've got it. I mean, that, that's the realistic way that the most employers would do it these days. Uh, and it has to be done before December 5th deadline. And that's gonna be a challenge. And whether that's realistic or not, it could take you that long to write the policy. And before you 
can tell employees what the policy is, you got to figure it out. So I assume as a practical matter, she's going to have to be flexible about that because I, I think it's going to be very challenging to do that in the time frame that's permitted. But in theory, the training is supposed to cover the policy. Um, the idea would be that um, you'd inform employees about everything they would need to know that we've just talked about. Uh, in addition to that, because OSHA is pro-vaccination, there's a requirement to inform employees about the efficacy of the vaccine and the benefits and the safety of the vaccine. And then in addition to that, there's a requirement to inform employees that they're not allowed to be discriminated against because they've filed a work-related theoretically COVID-19 uh, case, as difficult as that might be to, to establish, um, or if they engage in any other protected activity. So there's basically a, a new obligation to provide employees with training about their rights under Section 11 of the OSH Act. And then there's specifically a requirement to provide employees, which theoretically could be a manager too, about the sanctions that are available and criminal penalties for providing false statements or documents to the employer, which the employer would then turn over to OSHA or something that would be directly turned over to OSHA uh, by an employer that's an employer-created document. But uh, that's a kind of a new kind of twist to things, probably reflecting a change in administration. And those are things you need to keep in mind. Taylor, there's also a duty to self-report that mirrors in many ways the, the duty in 1904. That's right, Manoj. You know, we list the timing elements here in the slide, specifically that it's an employer's duty to report to OSHA any work-related COVID-19 fatalities within eight hours of the employer learning of the fatality, and to report any work-related COVID-19 hospitalizations within 24 hours of the employer learning of the inpatient hospitalization. And when evaluating whether a fatality or inpatient hospitalization is the result of a work-related case of COVID-19, uh, employers must follow the criteria in OSHA's record-keeping regulation, uh, which many of you are familiar with, uh, found at 29 CFR 1904.5. Uh, this is for determining uh, whether or not this COVID-19 case uh, was work-related. And in terms of how an employer uh, self-reports to OSHA, uh, you can telephone the OSHA area office nearest to the incident, uh, use OSHA's toll-free number, or use the electronic submission function uh, on OSHA.gov. This is an interesting sort of uh, um, bootstrap problem where the employer's duty is triggered within eight hours of learning of a fatality uh, that is work-related. But of course, the employer has to make a work relatedness determination for the standard to apply at all. Right. And we've, we've had to uh, go back and forth with compliance officers in the past and area directors pointing out that even if the employer had missed the eight hour deadline from the date it learned of the moment it learned of a fatality, if it was within eight hours of having made a work relatedness determination, that that would be compliant. And so employers, even this simple question of self-reporting requires a little bit of legal analysis. I encourage you to consider very carefully uh, what's the soonest opportunity, uh, earliest opportunity at which an employer can reasonably be expected to incur this duty. Well, with that said, the, the next provision in the emergency temporary standard goes to the requirement to make records available. 
Chavne? Right, Manish. Uh, the, the standard includes requirements for making certain records available to employees and to OSHA. So employees or individuals with written authorized consent from an employee can examine and copy their own vaccination and test result records. So, and the employer has to make these records available by the end of the next business day after a request. So, um, employees or employee representatives can also request information on uh, the aggregate number of fully vaccinated employees at a workplace and the total number of employees at the workplace. So, uh, employers have to make this information available by the end of the next business day after a request as well. Uh, for OSHA, OSHA can examine or copy a number of, uh, a number of types of records. Uh, the employer's written policy uh, required under this standard, uh, the aggregate number of fully vaccinated employees at a workplace, so the total number of employees at the workplace. So, um, so these, these are records that OSHA can examine and copy and employers must provide this information within four business hours of a request. So, uh, for all other records, uh, employers have to provide this information to OSHA by the end of the next business day after OSHA's request. Uh, the standard, um, there are also a number of different uh, important compliance dates coming up. Uh, so Taylor, could you go over what the compliance schedule looks like? Sure, Javanet. So the effective date for the ETS is today, uh, November 5th, 2021, which is the date the ETS was published in the Federal Register. And although the ETS becomes effective immediately, uh, employers are not required to comply with the requirements of the ETS until the compliance dates uh, listed here on the slide. So the compliance date for all provisions except for weekly testing is December 5th of this year. And then the compliance date for weekly testing is January 4th of 2022. And OSHA anticipates that the ETS will be in effect for six months uh, from the date of publication in the Federal Register. And the agency has initiated a 30-day public comment period, uh, which we'll get into a little bit more later. Um, and Manish, you know, we've received a lot of questions on whether the ETS uh, will be challenged in court. Yeah, I think that's an important question because that really affects whether or not employers will have to meet these deadlines. I'd note, Taylor, that you, you say that the weekly testing requirement is triggered uh, by January 4th. And that really uh, encompasses within it the, the vaccination requirement, because by December 5th, anyone who's not fully vaccinated has to wear masks and uh, undergo testing. So an employee may opt out by December 5th from the weekly testing and the mask wearing upon proof of being fully vaccinated. But they, if they're not vaccinated by that juncture, they really have between December 5th or between now and January 4th to obtain full vaccination uh, and uh, the full vaccination series and two weeks uh, after that, that's the definition of fully vaccinated. Uh, so so that, that I think is why there's the staggered uh, two deadlines between December 5th and January 5th that's important to point out. So Taylor, one of the questions you just asked was, well, what's gonna happen next? Are there going to be suits? Can we anticipate that there will be filing of suits? And can we anticipate that any of the uh, claimants or, or uh, the people filing suit will seek a stay of the efficacy of the emergency temporary standard pending a court resolution of their underlying claims. Uh, well, we know that the in the healthcare emergency temporary standard, there have been th three states that OSHA, the federal OSHA has issued, uh, to whom OSHA has issued a notice of intent to revoke their state plan status. Those states are Arizona, Utah, and South Carolina. 
and they each th uh, three have slightly different circumstances. I believe oh, Arizona said, well, we're going through full rulemaking with comments, uh, whereas South Carolina, I think has, uh, according to my readings, had taken no action or and stated its intent not to do so. So, so slightly different circumstances in each case. Uh, there are lawsuits. Oh, and the, and the next step would be for OSHA to, to publish in the Federal Register a notice of revocation, 35-day comment period, and then it may take action. So we'll see what happens there. But it, it gives us some indication of what OSHA would intend to do in the event that states don't comply with the full general industry emergency temporary standard published this morning. So there have already been a couple of suits at least filed, and we, we anticipate that throughout the day and throughout the next few days, there will be more. Uh, but, but the first one to file before even the publication of the federal, uh, in the Federal Register was uh, by the state of Arizona in the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona. Uh, then another one uh, this morning, as I understand it, filed by the Daily Wire in the Sixth Circuit. Uh, we've seen that at least 20, I think 23 maybe, governors of 20 to 23 different states have made public statements indicating that they intend to sue. Some of them may have done so at some point today or while we're speaking. Uh, and so we, we do anticipate, and plus we, we understand in our conversations with folks around Washington, D.C., that there are at least uh, a dozen, maybe two dozen other organizations uh, that intend to bring suit on various different grounds. Some of them are uh, arguments of constitutionality, and some of them are arguments within the framework of OSHA rulemaking uh, and, and OSHA's statutory prerogative to implement an emergency temporary standard and whether or not OSHA has properly done so in this instance. So all, a, a variety or a diversity of arguments underlie these many different claims or threats of claims. So, so the next question is, well, will there be a stay pending the outcome of any of these suits? Certainly, we think it's reasonable to expect that in all or almost all of the suits that are filed or will be filed, that the claimants will seek a stay. Whether or not they obtain one is a different matter, of course. Um, but given the number of suits that we anticipate to be filed and the number of different jurisdictions that will hear these suits, the sheer numerosity of these suits and the sheer numerosity of judges and jurisdictions that will that will hear these arguments suggests that the probability goes up as the numbers uh, total numbers go up that at least some judge will issue a stay properly or improperly is a matter that would be dependent on the individual arguments in each case uh, the elements uh, that that a claimant needs to establish in a motion for a stay are that they have to establish at the motion stage, at the very beginning, that there is a strong likelihood that they will succeed on the merits later on, and that if a stay isn't issued pending an, a decision on the merits, that there will be irreparable harm, which I, I think that that one, uh, employers, employer groups, states, and uh, private interest groups could argue uh, theoretically that there is irreparable harm uh, during the pendency of a, a litigation and its uh, final outcome. Uh, and then the last two are a balance. The judge or court will have to balance equities and the hardship to the parties because uh, there's, there's hardships on both sides, whether a stay is granted or not granted. And then we'll evaluate the public interests associated with a stay, especially in the case of a stay of a, uh, a public rulemaking. So ultimately, regardless of how any individual court rules on a motion to stay the standard, uh, ultimately these suits will eventually proceed to courts 
on their underlying merits, the merits of their underlying claims. And again, as I mentioned before, I think that you'll see a diversity of arguments uh, objecting to the emergency temporary standard. And so it's at this stage it would be difficult and may, maybe not a useful exercise to try and predict uh, how, how those, all of those uh, cases would turn out, most of them not having been filed yet. Uh, but it, one thing that's interesting that often gets lost in the discussion of, of emergency temporary standards, uh, Larry, is that an emergency temporary standard provides the agency with six months to undertake the process of promulgating a rule, a permanent rule, through proper rulemaking procedures. So let's talk about that for a moment while Larry, uh, I'd really love to hear your views on that, but the, the emergency temporary standard is itself essentially a notice calling for comments under the, the rulemaking procedure. And now the agency has six months. Larry? A couple of things. The um, exclusive jurisdiction for challenge to a standard would be in a court of appeals. I think that's why the, the news organization filed in the Sixth Circuit. So there'll be an, an initial, if you want to call it, modified race to the courthouse to see who gets filing within the first whatever is 10 days. Um, and those cases will then go into, as I recall, a lottery to see where the case eventually gets consolidated. But that would be the, the normal scenario. The unusual thing in this case is there are still, I believe, some state rules, uh, executive orders, Prohibiting, prohibiting OSHA, or should I say employers, from doing some of the things that this rule will allow it to do, whether those states will concede that there's preemption or whether there could actually be an enforcement action where OSHA Department of Justice would intervene in the state to block it, or whether Department of Justice would bring an action to enjoin the state from taking some action. There could be some offensive actions by the government in addition to the uh, challenges. Uh, getting to the comments and the related issues, I, I think you know there will be people who object to the rule on a variety of reasons. Uh, on a practical level, besides that, the time frame for compliance is probably totally inadequate. So I say at least a good chunk of comments sort of address explaining to the agency, which probably doesn't understand it at all, how long it's really going to take for an employer to do this properly and explain what measures are in place generally in the interim. I mean, it's not as though we're starting fresh. Most responsible organizations have had a program in place for some time and have been following the CDC and OSHA guidelines. So it seems appropriate for a substantial amount of the comments to say, look, this is how long it's gonna to take to set up this testing program you're talking about, and the volume of employees we have, and to coordinate all that properly, and then to decide how to write a policy and to train people, it's gonna take two or three months, and we're in the midst of, Thanksgiving and Christmas season on top of everything else. And some employers just plain shut down between Christmas and New Year's. There's, there's all kinds of reasons why the timing won't work. Um, I would say normally, if you look at the way things typically work out, the unions might file a challenge because they don't like the fact that the cost has been put on the employees to cover testing. And they might also challenge the fact that the, the rule doesn't cover employers with less than 100 employees, which is 
some say would be a weakness in the standard in the first place. And the court could turn around and simply say, yes, you haven't shown a grave danger, or they could turn around and say, you know what, there's a grave danger, but you haven't done an adequate job of covering it. And we're gonna mandate that you eliminate that exemption for hundred employees. Um, so that is one of the questions also that OSHA has asked for comment on. Uh, in addition to that, OSHA says, this standard was developed on the basis that we determined there was grave danger. You can agree with them or not and supply information one way or the other, but they now say that's not the standard for permanent standard. The definition for permanent standards, whether there's really just a significant risk. And if we go on the basis of significant risk, does that mean we should change the scope of the standard or, or what's required? Um, there's also a question about whether employees with prior effect infections really need to be vaccinated. There's some data showing that people with prior infections are still twice as likely to be infected as someone who's vaccinated and has never been previously infected. Um, there's a question from OSHA about whether the strict mandate should be imposed all across the board and not allow for testing. Uh, there's a question about whether face covering should have some sort of ASTM or other specification rather than simply being two layers of cloth. Uh, there's a question about whether OSHA should impose additional controls. And there's a question about feasibility. So all those questions are posed by, you know, just a quick look at things. And I imagine there are, are many other questions that will come into play because of uncertainty. Um, my initial read of this rule was that four hour time frame of paid time was probably total, not per, per shot, but there's some there's questions out there that are going to require some answers, and to the extent employers would like them, one way to deal with that is to ask for an interpretation. The other way is to put something in the comments. So there's a lot to be said. Um, there's also an issue about whether the standard, if it were adopted and stayed, uh, excuse me, went into effect, became permanent, um, whether it would lapse or be vacated or sunshined if the emergency temp you know, the emergency for the pandemic was declared to be over by the president. So there are a lot of things to think about. This thing otherwise could be on forever and we could be getting inoculations every six or 12 months for the rest of our lives. Larry, as it should be, you have the last word on this program. Thank you for going over some of the some, but not even all of the incredibly important points that employer organizations should be raising in comments during this comment period, which is a only a 30-day comment period. Uh, Keller and Heckman has participated on behalf of industry in the notice and comment rulemaking process in every single significant rulemaking for the past four decades, and will certainly be participating on behalf of uh, industry groups on this one as well. Uh, and there's a lot of arguments, including, I think, the, the threshold question of whether or not COVID-19 should be treated as inherently occupational in nature. Um, Larry, thank you very much for the, the, that rundown. That's it for our briefing. We, I want you to stick around. We have several hundred attendees today. Many of them have pre, uh, submitted some questions. We'll go off the record and address those. Uh, we, I wanna point out that this is a special briefing, but not one of the regularly scheduled OSHA 3030 program. Uh, the series will resume uh, on November 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Uh, we have sister programs, and, and by the way, that program, as long as, as well as this one, will be republished on YouTube, also as a podcast, 
and on our website, khlaw.com. So please, if any of your colleagues missed this program, send them uh, to our website and they can watch it on YouTube or listen to it on their podcast on the way home from work uh, with no loss of continuity. Uh, we have sister programs you should know about, the Tosca 3030 and the Reach 3030. The next ones are scheduled for Wednesday, November 10th and Wednesday, December 8th, respectively. These are uh, great programs that have been going on for a number of years. So if your organization uh, engages in activity that's uh, subject to compliance with Tosca or Reach, uh, please check it out. Uh, and we also have a FIFRA 3030. And if you have any topic ideas for the next FIFRA 3030, please let us know. And we'll be sure to pass that along to our colleagues who engage in FIFRA law. Uh, and, and several of our panel here today are amongst them. Okay, well, that's today's program. We look forward to seeing you on November 17th, the next OSHA 3030. And we're going to go off the record to handle some questions and answers until we see you next month. Stay safe. <laughs>